The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down the Klingon dictionary and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 224 with guest Oren Eaney, recorded live Thursday, March 1st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniak on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who firmly denies ever mooning the mouse at Epcot, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin on the east coast of the United States of America, coming to you from a booth somewhere on the fifth floor of the Duarte Building in New London, Connecticut, and my partner in crime, Richard Campbell, out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, man, mow any lawns lately in your bare feet? Not lately, but I think we're still in Orlando when this show is being broadcast. Well, this is true. <laughs> so it's still hot. So I'm not sure whether to say I'm in Orlando now or not. I mean, you know, I, I am from your perspective, dear listener, but from my perspective, I'm in New London. It's all very confusing, really. It is confusing. I don't think Einstein's theory of relativity explains it enough. I think uh, we have to look to Mr. Stephen Hawking to figure this out. You think so, huh? Yeah. I think he wouldn't take our call, but that's just me. Well, that was just that one time. <laughs> <laughs> I got an email from Andy Weaver. Hit me. Future show suggestion is the subject. Hi, guys. I'll start off with a confession. I don't listen to all of your shows. I'm a database administrator and not a programmer nor a developer. Stalker! <laughs> what was that? <laughs> He's a stalker. Oh, no. He's a DBA. DBAs don't stalk. They sit in bunkers. Oh, uh, I was just waiting for, you know, actually, I'm a carpenter. You know? Oh, great. Yet I do try to listen to shows that don't directly apply to me so I can at least get a sense of other topics. Well, there you go. He explained himself. Good. But the main reason I'm writing is for a future show suggestion. Since you are now doing two shows a week, we should be able to fit this in somewhere. Business intelligence is an area that I'm soon going to be more involved in, and I would love to hear from somebody from ProClarity. Since it is now a subsidiary of Microsoft, hmm, didn't know that. Yeah, got bought. 
I am sure it will become ever more tightly integrated with Microsoft SQL Server and the .NET platform. Getting a sense of what they're up to and where they're going would probably prove valuable to many of your listeners. Keep up the good work and congratulations on taking the show to twice a week. Well, if you keep listening, we'll keep talking. There you go. Thanks, Andy. And uh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Well, definitely. I've actually been involved in a ProClarity deployment some years ago and a fan of the product. Uh, it was before Microsoft acquired them, so I don't know what things are like now, but I'm sure we can find out. I'm sure we can. And it's not too far off base. Presumably, it'll get a .NET interface at some point. Yeah, and who knows? Uh, you know, we, we'll just poke around a little bit. We'll ask around, see if we can get somebody on the show. You bet. All right, one for me. Okay. Uh, this is from Abraham Barak Yahoo. I hope I got your name right, Abraham. Greetings, Carl. I'm an ASP.NET C-Sharp developer and a long-time listener. All right. Many people before me have said how great your show is, so I'll just say that it's good listening and one of the few knowledge-packed podcasts I listen to. And then he parenthetically said, podcasts can actually give you useful information? Rubbish, I say. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, to the point. I like the video with Iende on N-Hibernate. He's talking about DNR TV. And would like to see more and more on ORMs in general. I think ORMs are a great productivity tool that programmers need to learn and developers need to understand the workings of it. Yeah. There is a difference between coders and programmers and developers and insert other similar title here. Mm-hmm. So more on ORM and hibernate in particular. Please keep up the good work. You help out the community and the communa me a lot. <laughs> Abraham. And the communa we. There you go. Well, how fortuitous is that, Richard? Yep. Don't we uh don't we uh have a guest on today? I think so. Isn't it Iende? It is Iende. Well, how convenient is that? What's he talking about? ORM, specifically and hibernate. Wow. Yeah. How useful is that? I think he's waiting on the phone right now, so let's get on with it. So, uh, West Michigan Day of .NET is happening. When is that and where, Richard? The West Michigan Day of .NET happening May 19th in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Davenport University. Very good. And if you wanted more information on that, check shrinkster.com slash N1H. Also, we, we uh, have to uh, talk about Mix, Mix 07, which is happening April 30th through May 2nd. Am I right? That's, that's right. The 72-hour conversation. In Las Vegas. Keynoted by no less than Ray Ozzy. Yeah. And it's at the Venetian. And uh, that's going to be fabulous. There's going to be some special announcement there that's going to, quote, blow people's minds. Looking forward to it. We don't know what it. it is, but uh, it should be amazing. And you can visit them at www.visitmix.com. Also, the uh, the uh, the Dutch conference, the first Dutch code camp. That's right. May 12th, the first Dutch code camp. May 12th. And you can look that up at www.code-camp.nl. Excellent. And uh, getting to the job opportunities that our listeners have uh, sent us, there's a, the New York tour. Greg Brill at Infusion in New York City is offering a well, living and apartment uh, rent-free for a year in Manhattan with a with an appropriate salary for uh, some great software development down there in the financial sector. Uh, for information on that, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. Also, there's a great gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus. If you think you are the stuff in uh, ASP.NET, 
Go to shrinks.com MMJ. This is uh, also a bunch of show listeners. Um, you got to be located near or be willing to re- be relocated to Washington, D.C. And uh, all the credentials and all the re- requirements and all the, you know, the, the party schedule is all up there. <laughs> shrinks.com slash MMJ. Good stuff. And uh, good luck. I've We've gotten people, you know, a continuous stream of people who are interested in these things. So it's working out for the community. All right, Richard. Well, let's uh, introduce Oren. Oren Eni is a .NET developer living in Israel and currently working for We. That's W-E exclamation mark. He's heavily involved in the N-Hibernate project, among other things. And you can read his blog at Allende.com, A-Y-E-N-D-E. He's also going to be up at DevTeach in Montreal this coming uh, summer. Welcome, Oren Eni. Hi, how do you do? Welcome back, I should say. We had a very good show on DNR TV, uh, dnrtv.com, on and Hibernate. And I've been getting a lot of email about you lately, actually, and not just around N-Hibernate, but also some other projects you've worked on, or I think invented. Rhino Mox is yours, isn't it? Yes, Rhino Mox is mine. It's, it's it's very cool. I I don't even know where to begin with you. There's so many choices. Maybe we better start with N-Hibernate because I, I think that's sort of the, the hub of all the trouble here. Actually, you know, <laughs> let's let's start with your name, Allende. Is yeah. Allende your nickname and Orin is your real name? Orin is my name. Allende is a nickname that I use in 97 on the internet. And okay. I was 17, so everything is allowed because of this. But uh, the reason that I'm, I use it, I started blogging again in 2002, I think, and I was in the army then. And the IDF, uh, Israel Defense Force, has a very stupid policy about blogging. Mm. So I know of at least one case that they put someone to, to court martial because they uh, he published a critique about a movie. About a so, movie? Wow. A movie, yes. TV show, actually. And this is stupid, so I, I figured that I don't need it. And so I just use a nickname, and I use it for, I think, two years. And I'm stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I guess you've almost got to split uh, uh, two people out there that are actually you out in the uh, the internet. That lots of folks know who Iende is, and lots of folks know who Oren is, and may or may not connect the two together. But they're the same guy. Is there a meaning to the word Iende? Iende Rain is a part of a, is a fashion book that I read called The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. Ah, and. The meaning is very stupid. Allende okay. is uh, freedom and rain is down. Okay. So I said I was 17. It's <laughs> <laughs> good cover. Yes. <laughs> I can accuse every, everything with this. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way, let's talk and hibernate. So this is, uh, uh, is, this is the .NET uh, version, I guess you could say, of hibernate, which is a Java application. That yeah. uh, is an open source ORM project. Is that an accurate statement? This is an accurate statement. Yes. Okay. And is and Hibernate something that you started, or did you come into the project later? No, I didn't start it. Uh, actually, I think there was two or three attempts to put in Hibernate, to put Hibernate into .NET. Okay. And I I jumped on the ship on the. Uh, 0.6 era, and I wanted to start to understand it. And 
At the time, I had some free time, so I sat down and, and went over the codes and built a simple tool that would help me figure out what is actually going on. And um, eventually, started using it in a real capacity, not just to learn it, but in real projects. And uh, it turns out that I'm one of the most uh, the most visible people in in, in the Numberland space because I blog a lot and I blog a lot about the Numberland and issues that I that I can solve with it. So, so you're like the guy. Um, and not actually, <laughs> I'm not. I I know of three, four, four other guys that I, that I go to ask questions. Okay. And it's the the developer, the second developer, and Pierre Henry is currently writing a book about it. But I. Yes, I can say that I'm an expert in it. Okay. And I should also point out that if you want to see and hibernate in action, you can go to shrinkster.com slash MI5, Mary Idaho 5. And uh, that's uh, that points to the DNR TV episode we did on it. Uh, as far as feature sets of and hibernate versus the original hibernate, is everything there? Everything and no. more? No. I would say we have a, we have a parity in feature to Hibernate 2.1, and we are currently working on a releasing the Hibernate 1.2 release, which bring support for .NET 2 and generics and lots of other very cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And after that, our the roadmap calls for mostly parity with Hibernate Rio, and. Okay. We bring we do bring features, mostly Sergey, but sometimes I bring features from Hibernate Trio that we need now. So I can't tell you where on the map we exactly right now, but we are compatible with two one and starting to bring compatibility with Trio. So Oren, um, when looking at and Hibernate. How does can you tell us just a little bit about ORM systems in general and where and Hibernate fits in the uh, in the big picture? Okay, in the big picture is divided in, into two. You have the ORM that are based on the unit to fork pattern, and unit to fork basically says that you have you start a unit to fork, you do some sort of work, and then you and then you finish. Okay, it's. And the responsibility of the unit of work implementation is to track what what you did while you were in the unit of work and persist it or do something else with it. But usually it's persistence. Okay. So, uh, for for instance, um, I can take a piece uh, an object, and inside the unit of work I can do a, almost any kind of modification that I want to it, and then I can exceed the unit of work. And how and the object will be automatically persisted. So it's almost like a transaction in a database. Yes, but it it isn't in it isn't it isn't. Well, yeah, I mean it is because you've got a starting point and an ending point, but but it's not because you're working with the states of objects. Yes, because yeah. you because you don't, we don't have transactional memory yet. Okay, yeah, maybe it's safer to say it's a batch rather than a transaction. Uh, yes. Yes, it's more. It's much that more closely. But the idea is here that you don't need to track what you're doing. You don't need to explicitly explicitly track what you're doing. And I you guess that's hit- one of the traps you get into when you start working in ORM is that you're constantly concerned with what 
code in your that you use against your objects results in queries to the database. Uh, that can be a problem if you don't know how to handle it. Right. And it can be a very big problem in uh, certain cases because developers usually work on small data sets. Yes. There are thousands of uh, rows maximum. Mm. And when you go to production and you didn't realize what happened under the scenes, sometimes you get into a situation where, wait, the database is issuing 10,000 calls per page. Ouch. This is yeah. a number that I uh, was called to fix. So you're saying that uh, the ORMs fall into two categories, those that implement the unit of work pattern and those that don't. Yes. Those does not usually uh, work in a more disconnected fashion. Disconnected usually, meaning not connected to the to a database? Not connected to a database, or maybe they are connected to not exactly a database, but, uh, for instance, an object server. Or even just have, persisting to XML or something. Uh, yes, or yes, yes. For instance, Bamboo Persistence does uh, just that. So, so, are you saying those that per, the the unit of four could be synonymous with persistence? Uh, not exactly. You can do more things in unit of four than just persistence. Mm-hmm. But all the ORMs that I know of that use unit of four use it for persistence. Yes, and those that don't usually have usually follow other patterns. It's usually disconnected work, and it has a whole set of patterns which I'm not overly familiar with. Okay. And maybe you can think about like uh, Rocky Lot Cassiel SLA. Uh, yeah. So he, he has the data portal. Right. And uh, some theorem work similarly to that. You have a, an object that you can query and uh, query for data, and then you can uh, ask it to save. But it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it will track you. It's sometimes simpler uh, to work this way, but uh, personally, I obviously like uh, the interfork pattern. Okay. Oren, do all ORM products have uh, issues with scalability? Um, do all applications have, apl- have issues with scalability? Not all applications, ORM. I mean, when you, I know. when you use ORM, do you inherently have to watch out for uh, performance issues? I wouldn't say so. No. I would say that uh, there are some uh, some specific issues with ORM that you usually won't run into in uh, uh, the typical hand built hand built data layer. But those are those aren't really scalability issues. They are usually misuse issues. Let me let me. Okay, here's an example. I want to save five thousand meetings. Right. I can do it in a loop and call insert, 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 and that will be that will have horrible scalability. Right, because it's so going to have... fire out writes five thousand times. Yes, I can do it in a batch and call it uh, ten times. I can even open SQL by copy and do it once, and 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 really fast if I have to say fifty thousand fifty thousand lines rows. So. It's all about how you how you do it. ORM has a, typically two different diseases. One is the select n plus one, where you don't bring the data uh, up, up front, so you have to continually fetch it from the database. The other, the other issue is that you that you bring too much data. 
The classic, the, the classic example that you load a user and you load all its uh, groups, and in each group, in each group, you load all, all its users, and then all all their groups. Right. you have all the database in, the, in memory. And so you end up with so, query after query to fill in all of that object hierarchy. Yes, and, and even if you don't, if you, even if, if the ORM is smart enough to do it in a minimal uh, amount of queries, you still have 10 times, 100 times uh, more information than you need, than you want Yes, it. you've loaded a lot more data than you actually needed, and quite often... I mean, this is where the real battle comes in is I, all I did was instantiate the object to get a property out of it and all that other stuff just happened. Mm -hmm. So how do you gain, how do you reel it in? How do you get control over that? There are ways to to handle it. For instance, you can ask an abonnate, give me the customer object and all its orders. And you can say, give me, and then it will use the minimum amount of queries, usually one or two, to load, to load the object into memory. And there are more, more ways you can handle it in, for instance, a, about two months ago, I added a feature into in Hibernate that doesn't exist in Hibernate, which is the ability to batch several uh, read statements into the, into the database. For instance, I, I want to load all the, I want to see a, a page a page of users. I have 5,000 users. I want to see the first 10, and I want to see a count of them. And I, want to do, and I want to do it in a single query. So what I did, I added this functionality to Inhibernate. So what you what you can do is now is say, give me the first 10 users, and give me the first and give me the count of all the users, and do it in in one hmm. query. Is Inhibernate actually writing the SQL statements for you? Yes. So it's yes. smart enough to know how to combine those things efficiently. Yes. Like, I'm a data guy, so I'm going to be looking at Profiler and seeing what your nasty mm -hmm. ORM is doing to my database. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now, right? I'm going to be the guy banging on your door going, don't ever do that again. <laughs> I can tell you that I've seen handwritten SQL that was simply atrocious in so many levels, I can't even begin to... Oh, without a doubt. You know, th there's no better way to make ugly SQL than to write it by hand and not know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But so, I guess the strength here, if I'm understanding you correctly, is mm -hmm. that you guys have really written good quality SQL under the hood to minimize the number of queries. Yes, and Hibernate, Hibernate, we, and Hibernate gets a lot of its uh, smarts from Hibernate. And you get, you, you get to realize that in certain databases, for instance, in DB2, if you call a prepare statement and then uh, issue a call, it's less efficient if you, if you use, uh, if you don't call prepare statement. Right. So this is something that, you, that a developer wouldn't know unless they, Actually, really, really knew well uh, DB2. Yeah, and exactly. And have that implementation for you automatically. Mm. Mm. And take, into, take for example, paging in SQL uh, 2005. You have, to, you have to use common table expression, and you have to do it correctly, and it's at least uh, five, five, five lines of code usually. Right. So in, in 2000, you can't do it at all. You have to select top and uh, everything. So... The ability of Enhibernate to know the database, and Enhibernate has a set of dialects and a set of drivers that uh, each know how 
to talk to a, to a database specifically. So it can do sorry, it can do a lot it can do a lot more optimization under the hood. For instance, you can go to the config file and say when you save to the database, do it in batches. Right. And this uses the add-on uh, batching technology that that uh, is in datasets. So this is something that you wouldn't have access to. It's internal. No one else can access it except the data set. Right. And Enable did it by hacking the uh, system data uh, system data assembly. So it it would gain this uh, feature. This is a feature that can bring you fifty times more, fifty percent more performance. Nice. Yes, very nice. Have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps, but unfortunately that's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. There is WPF, of course, but that requires you to adopt a whole new programming model. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, complex gradients, and all that in classic Windows Forms? How cool would your application be then? Well, it's going to stand out. And it's definitely going to look nice. Stop envying and start delivering great experiences today. Telerik Rad Control Suite for WinForms offers the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are that you can do it. Join the Telerik WinForms Challenge today to explore the controls in a fun and engaging way. The challenge is a mini quiz that shows off the unique features of the controls. In just 10 to 15 minutes, you can see how you can make your desktop apps much more appealing. And you can win a product license by simply answering five questions correctly. And everybody who completes the challenge is automatically entered into the drawing for the grand prize... Get this, a 50-inch plasma TV. Check out Telerik Rad Controls for WinForms and join the WinForms Challenge today at www.telerik.com slash contest. It makes sense to me then that what this really is doing is bringing up the minimum level of data querying abilities of the average developer that a regular mm-hmm. mortal doesn't have to regular mortal developer doesn't have to know everything there is to know about databases if they use this they're going to do respectable querying yes and and having it as a feature that allows you to say okay for this particular class or for this particular query i'm going to use sql because that is the only way i can get acceptable performance Right. Hierarchical query is the best example because there is no portable SQL for them. So I can write a hierarchical queries in SQL using a connect by Oracle or a, a or again convertible expression in SQL in 2005 and tell them hey, take this, here is the format of the object that you get back, map it to this object and get it, and give it back to me. And then I still get all the benefits of using an laminate, which means that they get the transparent persistence, for instance. I get the ability to uh, use an identity map, which means that I don't usually have to worry about concurrency inside the same unit of work. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of using N-Hibernate? I mean, this isn't something that's tightly integrated into Visual Studio, is it? No. Let us say there are two ways to use an laminate. The common way is to use an AMB directly, which means that you have the XML files and you have IntelliSelf index XML files. 
And you have some sort of, uh, if we talk about a web application, you have an HTTP module, HTTP module that opens uh, that opens a unit of work uh, per each request and closes when, when the request is in its end. And then you just access the current session and load in the, in the persistent objects. There isn't support for inhabitant in Visual Studio except the IntelliSense for the XML files. So really, so really, this is something that you have to, you know, you have to do a bit of extra coding that you don't have a lot of help for. Uh, I wouldn't say so because you do you do have a lot of templates for it in for oh. a CodeSmith or my generation. Okay. And I know of at least one person that did a DSL for an Hibernate, hmm. and there are quite. DSL and DSL from Microsoft, the designers. Right. So there's a set of designs that you can even drag a table from a, the server explorer and, you, and it will create an object for you, a class for you, and the mapping for you. And uh, it's nice, and, I, and it's nice to see that it's nice to see that people are doing it. Have you seen any of the really integrated tools like Declare it, for example? Have you seen that? Yes, I, tr I tried Declare it. I actually evaluated Declare it. Uh, about two years ago, I think, and it insisted that my object model wasn't normalized. And I said, and I said to it, "Yes, I know it's easy to normalize. I know what I'm doing. Goodbye." Oh, it it it, it yelled at you because it didn't like the way that your data yes, looked. Yes, and it didn't let me continue. I'm sorry. I have no problem with a tool telling me, "Hey, you're stupid. Stop it." <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, the tool does it does it to me all the time. <laughs> but I have to be able to say, yes, I know what I'm doing. Right. And I guess most ORM products tend to insist on a certain structure to your objects. Not only the objects. The also data. The database. Yeah, right. Yes. And a lot of the ORM products that I've read the documentation about, I haven't actually tried a lot of them. I just read the documentation and say, okay, here's something that I can't live without. Dealing, for instance, had the, the many-to-many -many issues for a, a long time that I don't know if, if they ever solve it, solve it for a, the version that they're going to ship. So, okay, interesting. Very, very nice to see that Microsoft is doing the, doing the ORM in five, second, five different directions. Right. But this is not something that, that I can use. And I have a, I think I have a chat with... A, Luca Bolognese from the Adonet team, and their ideas about what extensible uh, data model is and what I think are vastly different. Because right. when I need to build an application, and I had a temporary application, and you know what it is, right? Which application? Temporal. Oh, a temporal? A temporal application? Yes. Okay. Go ahead and define that for us. It's an application where you need to know not in, not only the data, but when did you know the data, and when you were supposed to know about the data. So, for instance, uh, the classic example is a HR application or payroll applications. My salary today is one dollar. Tomorrow, my salary is two dollars, but okay. it's effective uh, since yesterday. So right. it's in order you you keep track of when things were changed. Yes, right. but not only when things were changed, but when they uh, came into effect, yeah. which is a different matter. Yeah. yeah. So for this, I had to do to have a very good support in the object model itself for handling date times and date ranges capabilities. 
Mm-hmm. And we used an Ibanate, and we, what we did, we built a set of custom collections that uh, knew intimately about the logic of traversing the, the dates. So I could say, give me an employee salary at date, and it would figure it out. And from what I've seen from, uh, from the accessibility points that I have in uh, D-Links, and later I, I also evaluated the other four entities, that it just, it just doesn't exist. And it has the same uh, hood-welded shot mentality that I see sometimes in Microsoft products. Hood-welded shot. I get it. Right. Can't get at the engine. Yes, and when you get into complex situation, you need to get in the engine, and you need yeah. to get into the engine and know what you're doing. And I have no no uh, problem with having to do something that they say, look, if you do it, you're on your own. This yeah, you're fine. taking your chances I, if you do this. Yes, there'll be Dracon. Okay, I can handle it, but I need to have <laughs> the ability to do it, because if I can't, then okay, I, did, I built 80% of my application. That was nice, easy. Now I need to do the complex 20%. But, uh, yeah, it's always the exceptions and how they handle that. And it's funny mm-hmm. that Microsoft seems to have got that right through most of the .NET libraries, but every yes. so often they still build something that you just can't get at. Yes, this is very true. If you take a look at the ASP.NET Interos, for instance, they are beautiful. You have yes. extension points all over the place. But uh, if you take a look uh, a bit above, then suddenly it's, it's become black magic again. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of building in my head a list of things I need to check whenever I'm evaluating an ORM library. Obviously, mm-hmm. the many-to-many is one of the key things. How do they handle that? Yes. But it's also this extensibility model. How can I make changes to things? That seems to be of utmost importance to me. I mean... Because that's, you know, ORM is all about abstraction. It's all about being at a high level. And, you know, the classic problem of high-level tools is, like you said, the hood-welded-shut syndrome. Something you bump up against a brick wall, you can't tweak it. Yes. Um, Oren, how does Link fit into the ORM puzzle? Link doesn't. And it's very interesting because Zinc is, isn't actually tied to any ORM. No, it isn't. But, I mean, you you have that kind of object queryability stuff built right in. Mm-hmm. What Zinc does is actually give me the query capability directly in the language. And this is something that I consider extremely nice to have. This is something that I probably have to implement in uh, in Abernet when I get a project that does the... Uh, that use the technologies. So ultimately, Link would query and hibernate objects. Yes, certainly. That if makes sense. I wouldn't to do me. it. Someone else would. Right. But uh, it's, certain, it's certainly that uh, it will happen. It isn't that complex. Well, and it makes sense. You know, the the two are different, right? Link is querying that the developer does in the language, and ORM is querying that the tool does below the language to the to the database. So they are different. The responsibility of the ORM is to bridge the gap between my object and the database. Sure, no. Right. I get it. And I'm actually thinking I'd be happier with developers using Link against and Hibernate objects than I would directly against the database. They have a better chance of, of not doing harm that way. Or do they? I mean, when you when you query an object with Link, 
you might have the uh, you might it might trigger the ORM to load the entire database into memory. But I'm thinking, and Hibernate's smart enough that it's not going to do anything really catastrophically dumb. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet on it. You can always get a tool to do dumb things. So it has enough power to shoot your foot off for sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Link will give you the ability to query in Hibernate in a different way. And right now you have at least two ways to query in Hibernate, which is using the Hibernate query language and using the Qtera API. And there is a, a tool that is that uh, give you link-like syntax in uh, .NET 2, when you can do where where dot customer dot name equal equals four, and you get a result back. And link would simply be another uh, way to query in Hibernate. Oren, I know you've worked a great deal on in Hibernate, and I know you, you have a particular project yourself around in Hibernate called uh, the Analyzer. Yes. Uh, which uh, helps uh, folks understand what in Hibernate is up to? Yes. I originally did it when I didn't understand what in Hibernate was doing. So I basically went inside and figured out uh, what I need to do in order to get an Hibernate to tell me. And uh, what uh, the Hibernate actually do is composed of two, two parts. The first part is let you run HQL queries. And it lets you see what the SQL counterpart is and what and the... So HQL is Hibernate query language? Yes. <laughs> and that, of course, translates to SQL. Uh, not, not, no. It doesn't precisely translate to SQL because, uh, because HQL is an object-oriented language. Oh, right. Object-oriented query language, we can say that. But uh, the idea is that, for instance, I can do a form object, and I can do, and it will get me every single object that was mapped from the database. Wow. It support, yes, it supports for uh, inheritance, it supports support for polymorphism. Yeah. It, and if you're really crazy, you can do some wild stuff with generating with it, but I don't recommend it because no one can understand what you're doing then. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Yeah, over abstraction, right? Uh, let's talk about Rhino mocks. I've gotten an email from folks saying, I just love this tool. Could you ask Oren about it? And maybe okay. we need to, and this is entirely your project, right? Rhino mocks? Yes. This is a project that I wrote because I was reading a book, uh, working effectively to leg with legacy code. Okay. And it's a book. It took me nearly two months to finish because I kept coding with, uh, the minute I started reading it. Well, wow, that's like the ultimate compliment to a book, is that it makes yes. you want to write code. Yes. Uh, it's actually frightening because I, I wrote the entire Ranomox in, I think, one to two months. And I, I, I kept reading the, the book as I went along. Now, what book okay. is this? Working Effectively with Legacy Code from Michael Feathers. Oh, right. Okay. Hmm. That sounds like a good uh, .NET Rocks interview there. Yeah, right there. Yes. Write that one Very down. Very fantastic book. Yes. And so Rhino Mox was really built around helping you work with legacy code? No. Actually, it. what happened, I was working on my analyzer, my number query analyzer at the time, 
And I, realized, and I realized that some patterns that I wanted to take from the book, I couldn't handle because the tool wasn't, I was using Enoch at the time. And it wasn't powerful enough to do what I needed. Okay. So I said, okay, I will leave the analyzer aside for a while and I will build my own tool. And I did it. And it actually got a lot more traction than the analyzer did. And right now I think it's my favorite mocking library. <laughs> so this is, um, yeah, I, I could see why you'd find your mocking library your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly. I just want to jump in here and uh, say that I've shrinksterized the link to Amazon.com's listing of uh, that book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, at shrinkster.com slash M-I-7, Mary Idaho 7. So maybe we should go to the beginning. What's the deal with mocking? Whether you're talking about M-mock or type-mock or easy-mock or rhino-mocks, why do people want to use these tools? Other than it makes me shudder because it's more code that I have to write to do nothing. <laughs> Billy Hollis, right? Billy Hollis, Billy Hollis yeah. There you go. Billy Hollis yes. is not a fan of mock objects. <laughs> He's not a fan of... Okay, I will say that. But, uh, a mock object... Okay, let's... Before we can understand what mock object is, we need to understand the problem. And the problem is that you're trying to test your code in isolation. Right. And let us say that I have an object that calls the database. If I want to test this object, I need the database to, to do this. And if I need a database, I need the correct data, and I need a, the database to be online, and if I'm trying to do it in my laptop in the bus, I can't. Right. So in other issues that calling the database costs, it costs several hundred milliseconds, and if you're trying to run a unit, a, a several thousand tests, it's starting to get really annoying to sit and stand the screen, test, 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 test. So what happened that people said, okay, we will break apart these dependencies, and we, replace, we will replace it with a fake one. But when you start to build in these fake objects, you realize that it's very boring, it's dead code. You write it for a single method or a or a single uh, test fixture, and then and you're done. And then every time you add something to the original code, you have to go back and change the test code. Right. So people said this is stupid. We can do it in using a tool. So JMock, I think, was the original, or uh, it started in Java, as far as I know. And in .NET, we, about two years ago, we had NMOC and we had the EasyMock.NET. So the responsibility of these uh, libraries is you tell them, give me a mock object of class foo. And, right. and they hand you back an object, and you can, and you can say, expect that the method go to the database will be called with uh, such and such parameters. And when it is called, you should return this uh, list of objects. So, uh, I, uh, uh, and I can take this and uh, set up the expectation for the for the mock object appropriately, and then I can call my my uh, the code that is under test. And what happens then that I know what the code is getting, and I know how it should behave, so I can assert that it behaved correctly. Right. So th th this is, is the battle problem. that I get into in larger development projects. 
is three or four people all trying to access through to this test database and conflicting with each other. Or more relevantly, you get into this battle of what's broken here. Was it the database call or is it the the object parameters? Are we not validating correctly? Mm-hmm. So when you're testing, you want to have a test that when it fails, you know, okay, this test, only such and such class under such and such circumstances can fail. So right. it is a bug or the test has, or the test itself has a bug. So you fix it and you say, okay, now I can run the test again and I can get the, the exact same uh, environment because the, because the environment you set up for the object is entirely faked. Right. And now you can test the object in complete isolation and you say, okay, I have a test that passed for this object under these circumstances. So I know it's not this object. That's a yes, it has else. to be something else. So the purpose of every mock library is to make it easy to to pass fake objects to into the the object that you're testing, which can be done either in uh, using constructor injection when the construction has parameters that uh, you pass and, uh, and then you use it uh, later on, or you can pass it to the method directly, or you can uh, replace a global var- a singleton variable or something like that. And what an Ibanet does, uh, what an Ibanet, what RhinoMock does is, it, usually in the mock uh, libraries, you're working against uh, the string. You said expect once a, a call, that you say, that in, in uh, quotes, name of the method, and then you carry on with uh, the rest of it. And what I found that I refactor a lot, and uh, when I refactor, all the tests broke. Because I changed the method name, and the right, test yeah. did, and the test uh, called the previous method, so it broke, and it got really annoying. The fifth time that they had to go and change seventeen tests, I think, to make a because I, I, I rename a method. So I decided I want to do I want to work against the object directly. So what RhinoMox does, you tell it, uh, give me a mock object of type ifu, or you can say uh, foo itself, because you can mock styles as well. Right. And so it gives you an object back. And you say, expect uh, dot .call foo nekuda get blah, blah, blah. And then you start to, and when you say foo dot get, this is the method. You get IntelliSense, you get... Uh, uh, XML documentation, whatever. This mm. is, as far as the environment is concerned, you're calling the method on the object. So you get the what benefit of all that written goo without actually having to write the goo. Uh, yes, yes. How do you go about creating these mock objects in Rhino well, Mock? Richard, I think Black magic. Rhino Mock builds the mock objects that so from your regular when objects. I, when I specify the call, it creates it on the fly for me. Yes, what happened is... You give me a, a, a type that you want to mock. Right. I take, the, I take the type and look it up. And then what I do in runtime, I build the derived object of this type. So, for instance, if you give me an IFO and it's an interface, I build an object that uh, implements this interface, and then I, return, I, I then I return to you an instance of this object. Yeah. And when, this, when you call a method on this object, the object knows, hey, a method was called. Let's tell one mock that it was called. So it does that, and RhinoMock has a, a way of figuring 
Okay, now I'm recording what uh, this object does. So I store it in the expectation list. Right. And later on you say, okay, I finished setting the expectation for this method. Let us start replaying the expectations. Mm. And uh, from then on, every time that the object tells her, okay, I was called with this method, with these parameters, it's, it checks if this is a valid call. If it is valid called, then it's then the expectation is removed, and you can and you can go forward. At the end of the test, you usually you usually call verified to check that all the expectation were met. I get it, and this is where they come from with the term expectation based model. Yes, it's just it's defining all, all you're doing is defining the expectations. Yes, it's also called interaction based testing because you're testing the interaction of the object with its, with its collaborators. Right. Hmm. And what kind of expectations can you set? Uh, just about everything, I think. From that this method should be called with parameters that start with um, is of type, start with this string, uh, its property is of uh, this type and is not null, and just about everything you can. You can also uh, tell, tell Rhinomox, look, this is too complex to, for you to handle. Call uh -huh. me when you call me when uh, uh, the method is called, and I will tell you if this is the correct method or not. So, so I can actually, then go in and write my own code to say, yeah, yeah that passes or it doesn't. Here's yeah, a question okay. for you. When you're building mock objects in your, let's say, I want a mock object of a data set or something. Oh, boy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. And <laughs> are you going to inherit from a data set object and give me an object? Yes. So what if I'm actually writing code that's looking at the type and validating the type using you reflection and all that kind of stuff? Uh, this depends on what you're trying to do. Because if you're trying to... Check that the type that you got is actually a, is a data set. Well, what if I'm just trying to cast it, right? What if I'm, what if I'm trying to cast it and you know the there's like a, uh, you know a shadows somewhere, uh, you know a shadowed method somewhere, and I cast it, I get different behavior based on whether I'm using the original, uh, you know the top level type or or a derived type. Yes. What happened? Uh, this is a bit complex because you can have a virtual shadowed method. Virtual uh, shadow is new in the uh, <laughs> shadow. shadowed wasn't abstract and obscure enough. Now we have virtual shadow. Wow. Yes, and you can get and it gets more complex when you go to the IL level. Yeah. But what happened is uh, RhinoMock will override each and every virtual method in the in the object. In the case of datasets, it's basically mean every method I think, and the uh, what happened is, let us say you have a, a animal and dog, and you can uh, and you try to mock the, you try to mock dog, and dog has a shadow property that uh, that all, that the animal has as well. Right. So what happens is, if you call into the animal uh, property, assuming that both are virtual, by the way. If you call the animal property, Ranomok will set an expectation for a call on the animal property. And if you call on the dog property, it will set an expectation on the dog property. And the reason for this is because on the IA level, there are two separate uh, methods in the meta table of the object. 
and run amok just like that and uh, can understand what what is happening. On their normal circumstances, for instance, if it's standard uh, virtual call, then it's not a problem. But uh, I actually get people that uh, email me with such questions on very weird scenarios that they have in, which makes for very interesting uh, bugs to follow. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I know more about the CLR internals than I will. So I know you've gotten some traction from this because the listeners have asked about it, but how many people are using RhinoMox? Do you know? Uh, I can't actually tell. I know that there are several uh, thousand downloads, I think, for the okay. various versions. But uh, right now, I think I released, uh, released the beta 2 of uh, RhinoMox. RhinoMox 3.0 beta 2 a week ago, and I plan on doing uh, betas until I run out of numbers or run out of bugs. But uh, I think that I got uh, around uh, 150 area adopters for RhinoMox uh, 3.0 betas. Wow, and awesome. From the levels of questions, there's quite a few. That's great. How far do you plan on taking this? Is this like a side hobby now? And. Uh... Or is this what you're doing full-time? No, this side hobby. Ranomox is a free open-source product. So I just do it because I enjoy working yeah. on very, very... Ranomox is probably the cleanest code that we ever produce. Ah, so I see. Got, wow. Well, it's, it's got, got a very specific domain to focus on, and it looks like you've got a real vision around it, so mm -hmm. it's probably pretty tight. Yes, except that I have to do with I have to deal with some very strange CLR internal stuff where it starts right now. But uh, I recently added the generic method support to RhinoMox, and I started getting some very very weird uh, bugs back. <laughs> what happened when you have a, What happened when you have a generic method that call to a generic type and return it? So the actual Type isn't known in runtime, and even then, the CLR will lie to you about the time that uh, you get. Right. <laughs> so that wasn't fun to fix. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, you're inside the space of objects, analyzing objects and deciding who they're trying to impersonate. Mm -hmm. That can get pretty weird. <laughs> I was going to say the weirdness factor is just going to get more and more uh, pronounced. And do you ever f foresee it just becoming too complex to? To continue being a hobby? I actually got several requests about commercial and RhinoMox. Yeah. Uh, people want commercial support for it. Right. I may, be, may, I may be able to provide commercial support for it. I don't think that I will commercialize the library because, uh, frankly, I don't... The amount of uh, investment that needed to produce a commercial library at... Uh, is too too much for me to want to deal with. Yeah. And there are, then there are commercial libraries such as Typemonk that uh, exist in this space. And Typemonk is actually more powerful than Rhinomonk if you want to uh, mock just about everything. Wow. Typemonk, okay. you said? Typemonk, yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, what Typemonk does, it uses the profiler APIs to intercept every each and every calls that are made under the under the application, so it can actually mock everything. 
Rhinomorphs work by Rhinomorphs work by overriding every property that every method or property that it can. So it can mock so it can mock interfaces, it can mock uh, classes or abstract classes, but if you have a, a non-virtual method, it can't mock that. And that's the one allow it. I'm sorry, that's at typemock.com. Yes. Yeah. Product. So what's next for uh, for your products here? What, what's next for N-Hibernate and what's next for uh, RhinoMock? Right. Yes. Yeah. RhinoMock is going to have a final 3.0 release in, I hope, the next month or so, depending on how many weird conditions people put it under. Okay. More people Hibern- doing generic calls to generics, you mean? Yes, <laughs> very, very, very freaky stuff. And I'm speaking about someone who implemented the uh, implemented compi- compiler error for queries using generics. Ugh. <laughs> yes, this is very, very freaky stuff. <laughs> Where the correct answer is, don't, don't do, do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know they're going to get that a lot. This response. <laughs> don't do that. If it can be done, they will do it, and they will want your tool to work with it. <laughs> yes. Or else I'm so, going to give my money to someone else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and I actually got some very interesting response because of that. Why are you supporting that? Because this is a very freak scenario. Here's yeah. an extension point. Go ahead. Have fun with it. This is literally what I did when several people came and say, I want to do this or that. And I said, I don't think that is the appropriate uh, thing for Anomox to do. So why right. don't you go ahead? Here is a way for you to hook into the Anomox internal. I built a demo for it, for them to see how it can be done. It's working perfectly. They have a, they're very happy. I don't get bugged. Yeah, you don't have to write it. Yeah. And about an Ibernate, we have the... 1.2 release coming, I hope, very soon. We are now in the, you will call it RC for some reason, uh, release candidate for some reason, uh, Sergey, the lead, lead developer, call it a candidate for release. No idea why. Hmm. And the general, general availability release should be, is the next release, so to speak. It's probably a month or two away. Excellent. Yes, but of course we are open source product. We can we can decide we we will release it tomorrow. We release it in six months. No right. promises made about release dates. So I know you're coming to Dev Teach in Montreal in May. Any other conferences we could see you at? Uh, actually, no. I recently did a Microsoft Academy in Israel. We had uh, roughly two hundred and two thousand five hundred people. Wow. And I gave a talk about inversion of control, which is a very hard topic to talk about, apparently. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, just a teacher, I think. I'm a friend of mine is trying to build a user group here in Israel. There are several already existing user groups, and okay. a friend of mine is trying to build anyone, and I probably help him with this. That is just about it. Okay. Okay. And what are you going to be talking about at DevTeach? I'm going to give three talks. One about Rhinomocs, one about advanced usages of advanced usages of inversion of control, 
And if okay. I don't just introduce universal controllers hard, let us say how I can handle some advanced uses. This. And I'm going to talk about monorail, which is... Oh, really? The, yes. Yeah, we didn't mention monorail at all so far. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, fantastic framework. Simply, simply a joy to work with. Really? You know, Ted yes. Neward's going to be there at DevTeach. Perhaps we could convince you and Ted to go head-to-head on ORM uh, okay. on a panel or something. Because I don't know if you know this, but Ted's not a big fan of ORM. Um, really? <laughs> <laughs> but it would be great to, to actually pull pull apart some of these points and... And uh, it would be certainly great for the attendees to see the fur fly. That but, would be an interesting discussion. Yeah, maybe we can make that happen. The uh, website is Allende.com, and <laughs> the website for nHibernate is nHibernate.org. O-R-G. It's also at SourceForge.net slash project slash nHibernate. Oren Aini, thank you very much for being on the show and explaining your, your product and your work. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, and we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a